welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click. A quick announcement before we begin for any e-commerce brands listening. Customers Who Click now offers a performance-based full-service CRO program. So if you're looking to improve conversion rates and average order values, get in touch today at customerswhoclick.com. Back to the podcast. So today's topic is data. It's so important to properly understand the data you have, make sense of it and make use of it properly. It can be really difficult and overwhelming, particularly due to the sheer amount of data out there. Richard Harris, CEO and founder of Black Crow, an AI platform that helps brands understand and make use of their data, is joining me today as my guest. Let's get him on now. Hi, Richard. Thanks for joining me today. Would you mind to start with a bit of an introduction to yourself, a bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I'm Richard Harris. I'm the founder and CEO of Black Crow AI. We are a machine learning and data infrastructure company focused on middle of the market e-commerce merchants. Uh, so I've been working in and around e-commerce for almost 20 years. My first company I founded was incubated by the Boston Consulting Group, where I worked for, for many years and have slowly just seen the impact that data can have on businesses. And I think particularly in the last few years, everyone's got the message that sort of data is power, data is the new oil. And we're very much in the business of making sure that brands own and access all of the data that is theirs. And when you apply machine learning to first party data, you can develop unique sets of insights that can really propel your business forward and do so more profitably. Yeah, cool. Sounds great. So how do you get customers clicking? Yeah, well, I think it's such an interesting, interesting question because for us, really the goal is about de-averaging your users, de-averaging customers and making sure that you understand their future value. And so you want to make sure that the right customers are clicking on the right things and clicking is in itself, not necessarily a good. Um, you want to make sure that you understand what your users are trying to accomplish and tailor their experiences accordingly. So it's really about getting the right message, the right offer, the right product in front of the right customer at the right time. So that sort of underlies everything that we do. What sort of level brands are we talking about? Yeah, so really at the low end, probably about 5 million of turnover of GMV oh, okay. up to about a billion of GMV. That's our sort of customer set today. So obviously some of these some of these brands are going to be dealing with a huge amount of data. Yes. There. How how do you make sense of it? Yeah, yeah. How do you how do you know what to look at and what to do with that data? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things when you, especially when you think about all of the data that a brand has access to, even just thinking about their own data, right? Their own first party data. There's just so much of it. And especially we are very focused on real time AI, sort of using machine learning to understand the vast amounts of streaming data that are happening inside of a, a merchant's website. So if you think about every single behavior that happens inside of an e-commerce site, like down to the scroll, click, how long someone spends looking at an image, lingering on an image, redoing their search, and then multiply that by all of the users interacting with, with your brand's website at any given moment. For us, we think about for every user action that someone takes, so every activity that someone does inside of a brand's website, there's about 500 meaningful signals happening with that one action, as simple as a click. And the volume of data, that means if there's 500 signals with every action, there's just so much streaming data. And it's really too much for any user to make sense of. And then, of course, you want to attach that streaming data to 
do they purchase? Where do they come from? All of these other contextual things. And so it's really too much for any single or team of humans to make sense of. And that's why machine learning is sort of the, the superpower. And I'd say like I worked for a very long time with very large companies, publicly listed Fortune 500 kind of companies. And they have for the last five to 10 years been building their own machine learning stack, meaning they hire an army of data scientists and data engineers and spend millions of dollars on infrastructure software. Those efforts fail a good amount of, of the time, but they eventually get there and they're able to predict the future of their key KPIs. And when you can see the future of those KPIs, you can take action now to change the outcomes. And so our goal at Black Crow was to be able to do the same thing for brands of any size. So make it fast, no technical experience required, a one-click in install. And then all of a sudden, the machine can make sense of this vast amount of data that you own and have access to at a brand and predict very important things like what is the future value of every single user? Who's likely to opt in with what sort of prompts to your email or SMS alerts and a whole host of other things. But when you know the future of user behavior and user value, you can do all sorts of things in the moment to really boost the relevance and likelihood to purchase for your customers. Yeah, I suppose my question would be, if if the if the tool is predicting a certain lifetime value for a customer, would that not be based off the existing experience? I, if I do not change anything, that's the value that person should hit. True. Yes. So we are. If you think about some of the things we predict, like how likely is a person to transact or repeat buy, that unit of information itself. So that's a prediction we generated in real time, 15 milliseconds after anyone does anything inside of a brand's environment. We push that back to you and then make it available in any of the action platforms that are useful to you. But if you think about, wait, isn't that prediction dependent upon the experience as is? Yes and no. There are certain actions that brands can take that increase the probability of a certain outcome. But I think even just knowing the prediction itself, knowing how likely a user is to say buy or repeat buy, that's a very important fact on itself, whether the future experience has changed or not. Because if you know someone, you know, or even like the bottom 30% of your, your site visitors are very unlikely to purchase in the future, you can, for instance, spend a lot less on future marketing, time, energy, dollars, chasing those customers and refocus on those yeah. customers who are going to buy in the future. And so that on its own, we push these predictions into Meta or TikTok or Google, wherever a brand is, is spending money. And just that simplest optimization, which is, okay, spend less on people who aren't going to buy, that can be a very powerful yeah. thing. Yeah, I suppose if you're able to, if you're able to say... All, all the customers who come through certain ad campaigns or certain targeting don't don't convert. So let's stop spending on those. We can get even more yeah. granular than that because what you find is for sure there are certain channels that may perform more or less effectively for certain brands, certain campaigns, certain messaging, et cetera. But then if you almost just take all of the users, almost regardless of how they got to the brand's website, 
their that streaming data I was talking about earlier, all of their in session behavior, that is an extraordinarily rich and predictive set of signals. And when you have access to that, which is data that you as a brand own and use it to create predictions, things like where did they come from tend to fall by the wayside. So there may be a specific campaign that's just not working for you or a specific message and email that people don't understand. But the richness of the in-session data users, how they interact with your brand, what their flow is through your, through your purchase funnel, that is much more predictive than a macro factor. And we predict it down to the individual. And so those sorts of things enable you to take much more granular decisions on a user basis versus something as blunt as just a channel, for example. Yes. Yeah, so would that mean like feeding into personalization tools or something so that you can, you're, t- you're making those changes to the website based on that data? Yeah. And I suppose saying this person's come to the homepage they've taken XYZ actions. So therefore, when they get to the PDP, we want to display a certain message there. Yes, that's one That's one application. So again, we're focused on just first-party data of the brand's own, producing these predictions. And then we sort of have these playbooks or use cases which are set up to guide brands through, and we have a sort of service team that helps guide brands through these individual use cases. And we sort of have just walked down the PL of a brand to figure out where are the biggest pain points, where, where where are the highest costs inside of a brand. And so of course, brands are are like it or not in this in this era, very much CAC LTV equations, right? So you have a, a wonderful product or service at the center, but then we all live and die by how how expensive is it to bring someone to view our product or service? And then what is the value of it long term of having done so? And so changes to the UX, for example, based on those predictions, super powerful, but we package them into, into certain use cases that are very easy to use. So our first one was in marketing. So when you know the future value, kind of what we're talking about earlier, when you know the future value of the user, you can market to the right folks much, much more effectively. You can allocate your spend effectively to the right users. We just launched a new product that sort of builds on a piece of infrastructure that we launched in the market called Smart ID. And that lets brands who have sort of experienced a lot of signal loss with all of the changes that Apple in particular has made over the last yeah. uh, year or two, that's meant that brands were unable to recognize their returning users. So maybe someone who had visited the PDP before for a certain product or a set of products, and then they come back 10 days later, you have no idea that it's the same person and the person who rec- who you know visited the, visited that product details page. Now with Smart ID, you can recognize so it's sort of a first party identifier brand set on the server side, and now you can sort of connect the dots across time and across sessions. And so if someone comes back, you may want to get that product to the front of your uh, on your homepage and make sure they're reminded of it. Or if there were in the past email flows that you would trigger based on someone viewing that, you can now do that again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've got the ability to to feed in that personalization and say, well, we know who this person is. Let's make these relevant changes. But I suppose that ID, that identifier, also really helps with the advertising side as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Because obviously, when people look at Facebook ads, right, people are mainly looking at the conversions, right? If an ad doesn't convert, that's normally a, the the thing that tells them, well, let's let's stop this campaign. Yeah. But I suppose 
with this, what you can say is, well, actually, that's a really useful touch point for people. They don't convert because, you know, I suppose maybe that's not what the ad is trying to do or, or, or for some reason, they're just not converting from the advert, but they come back later through another channel. That's right. But that's right. It's sort of that problem of, of attribution and multi-touch attribution, right? Which is there may be one or there may be 12 touch points that a brand has with a, with a user before they actually transact. And if you can make sense, if you can stitch together those touch points because you have this persistent identifier, then for example, you can have a much better view of the effectiveness of your marketing spend because you actually understand the impact of these multiple touch points on a single user. Also just for Meta, for example, they have what's called the EMQ or the event match quality. And this is sort of a measure of, is the data that you're about your user base, that data that you're feeding into Meta to make their algorithms work better if you're using, say, Advantage Plus or something. All of Apple's moves have sort of cut off brands' abilities to pass high-quality data back to Meta. With this persistent identifier, you can increase your own first-party data asset because you're understanding users not as seven anonymous sessions, but a single user across seven touch points that you've had. And you can feed that event data and get your EMQ much, much higher, like 50% higher in Facebook. And that makes your ROAS much, much stronger. And so that's a, that's a great use case for smart ID. Another is people who have opted in to say your email list or your SMS alerts. Normally, in the past, when people were able to use cookies as identifiers, you could say, oh, this is Will who signed up for my email list. He just added this product to cart and then abandoned. So let me get my normal Klaviyo email flows directed at cart abandoners set up and going for Will on this particular product. Again, that ability has been cut off for a huge number of users because of what Apple has been up to. And so this identifier restores that. So now, oh, this is Will. He's opted into my email list. This is the product he put in his cart. Let me trigger my normal email flows or SMS flows. And that's meant with Smart ID and Clavio, where we where we launched last week. Brands are seeing 50 to 200% more direct revenue attributed to those new email flows. Yeah. Okay. So this is, yes, we're all about AI and hyper, hyper practical applications that just make marketing more efficient, growth more aggressive and profitability provably higher. Yeah. Yeah. I think for the, for the email side, I mean, one thing that I, I like to do is, is display different pop-ups for existing customers. So it could be trying to capture zero party data. Um, it could be trying to, pr- trying to promote something that we, the client wants to promote. So initially we're going to be saying, sign up to the email, get 10% off, 20% off, whatever. There'll probably be another question in there, such as what is the main reason you're looking to buy one of these products? But once you've got that purchase or once you have that sign up, the next time they appear, you can ask them a different question. Yeah. Or you can ask them or get them to enter a competition or but try and enrich the experience, but it's a bit more difficult to do when you don't know whether it is that first that person's first time. Exactly. Time exactly. Tenth. We've seen that a lot where we have another product that's in beta today called predictive opt-in and there obviously as as paid channels have just become less efficient more expensive 
I think there's an increasing focus on owned channels like email and SMS. And so the opt-in rates can be a really huge driver of incremental low-cost revenue. And I think there's been some standard practice in the past driven by the big email and SMS platforms, which is whenever someone arrives, put that light box in front of them and ask them to, to sign up or opt in. So as you said, A, you might have people who have already opted in and you don't know they have, so they're getting that light box, which, which can be a distraction. But then we also use, again, using a brand's first-party data, we can predict if, if your goal is getting someone to opt in, what is the right incentive? And often, like, what is the minimum incentive you need to get this person to opt in? And at what point in their journey should you deliver that light box asking them to opt in? Because it turns out, and again, you can predict these things using machine learning, but just having a light box on that first page may or may not be the right experience for any user. And so you can very materially increase your opt-in rates. And again, that is new sources of revenue, especially when you're using something like Smart ID and you can recognize those usage in the future. Yeah, I think being able to display different promotions, yep. depending on, on the different customers would be great. I, mean, I think when, when we spoke last time, I mentioned that we this is something we've done in the in the gambling space yes. kind of bit. We had a, a predictive model based on their first someone's first seven days. But obviously it started it, it kind of started well, it was profiling obviously from the start, but it could very quickly say this is going to be a VIP person. Yeah. But then by the end of the seven days it would tell us it's the 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 estimated cash value of the person. And it just meant that we were able to very quickly segment them into different user flows, different communications. If, if people were above a certain value, they'd get assigned an account manager automatically and yeah, and just get different promotions and things because obviously we don't, we didn't want to give a huge, huge bonus. That's really easy to get to someone who's probably only going to claim that bonus. and then come back. Right. And then yeah, disappear. You want to give the big bonuses to the people who, who will play that bonus, but then happily keep playing afterwards as well. Right. So one thing I wanted to ask was, is there like what does a what does a valuable customer tend to look like? Do, does is is that a thing, or it, or do you find that it's very much different, like business by business? Are, th are there some trends in in user behavior that seem to apply to a lot of businesses, and you and you'd be comfortable saying this is a good start point? Or yeah, is it a is it very much a we've got to figure out this business from scratch? Yeah. So when we the honest answer is, I don't know. And that's because we don't spend a lot of time trying to translate our predictions into sort of a human understandable sentence. What we do, so I can tell you for sure that every customer we work with, and we have hundreds of brands that use our predictive models, or smart ID, and we, our machine, it's like totally automated. So it's one click to install. And then it's, it starts understanding a brand's first party data. It takes usually seven to 10 days before it has a good predictive model, but that model is bespoke to each brand. And so, uh, and it's also refreshed every single day, meaning in the middle of the night, the machine wakes up, it looks at that particular brand's most recent data and rebuilds a model as though it hadn't existed. And there's two reasons for that. One is the consumer behaviors and interactions that are predictive of something like a purchase or a repeat purchase or a subscription, those are very unique 
by brand. And so when we go into it, we have no idea, like we have no rules of thumb about, oh, a user coming from this channel or landing on this page or really any sort of rules-based heuristics. We focus literally on the streaming data and what it tells us. And that evolves over time, right? So if you're a business that may have seasonal peaks, maybe it's in line with Black Friday and the holidays, or maybe it's counter-cyclical or Valentine, who knows? But user behavior and which signals are predictive of the outcomes you're looking for will change over time, seasonally, as the macro economy changes, as your competitors change their prices or you change their prices. And so you have to be on top of that all the time. And so while initially one's impulse may be to look for like, oh, people who come at night tend to be high value users or people who spend X amount of time on the site are high value users. And you can occasionally find some correlations, but the answers are going to be much, much richer and much more multivariate. And that's why in general, machines do such a better job of these kinds of predictions and insight delivery than a human can on his or her own. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that makes sense. I mean, I, I, everyone's different, aren't they? Yeah. So even when you, you're, you're kind of generalizing by saying people who take these actions are more likely to convert, yeah. I mean, shows they are, but there's probably 10 other things they're doing on the site which could all be different. Yeah. And that's what, so if you think about things like prospecting audiences, right? Lookalike audiences. The thing that a Facebook like Meta or TikTok might be doing is when you pass them an audience and say, oh, this is my past purchasers. Or So obviously they should be high value users. What Meta or TikTok will do is they'll sort of look at the universe of things that they know about this person or people like this person and say, oh, they are a male and they are suburban and they have an interest in X or Y category, and they'll try to find these patterns or similarities, sometimes demographic, sometimes psychographic or behavioral. They'll try to find these things. But again, if you think about Meta, they're operating on a base of billions of people. And if you're an e-commerce brand trying to generalize at that level, like we're just at, you know, we, our customers, we're at a data disadvantage. And so we use what is rich and predictive based on on a brand specific website behavior okay yeah makes sense so where, do, where does all this kind of the this data level i suppose fit in um if let's, let's say brand installed the app and got going what is the next step right i, I suppose it comes back to this how do they make sense of all the data sure. what, what is the next step for them do you recommend that they start plugging it into meta first and use it as a as a, a, an ad optimization piece. Is there an on-site experience? You know, what I suppose? Do you have a? This is step one. This is step two. This is step three. Once you've downloaded and installed the app, we do. Yeah. So, and this is I should make one thing that we talked about earlier. So we use only a brand's first-party data, and so that means, and we just process it, and it's in a silo. The data never goes anywhere except to produce predictions for that brand. And we push those predictions back to the brand via an API. It goes to the page and then to whatever tool they want. And they own that data. That prediction is another unit of their first-party data. And in the case of our persistent identifier, obviously that identity is is that identifier and you know it being attached to a mobile phone number, an email order, 
also the brand's own data. So they own it. They can do whatever they want with it. As I mentioned, though, having done this dozens and hundreds of times with different brands, we know there are these sort of use cases that will generate very quick and easy value. And so our sort of methodology, our strategy is like one installation, many sources of value delivery that we provide. So usually where we start is, is we say, you know, get your first party data house in order by using smart ID. So again, it's extremely simple to install. And then from once that's installed, you can recognize all of your returning visitors. And so step one, sort of low hanging fruit is use that user recognition, that smart ID in Klaviyo because it's extremely simple to set up and you'll be able to trigger flows based on your ability to resolve the, who this user is and just grow your email revenue. Step two is usually now deploy this into meta. And it's where I think a lot of brands spend a good chunk of their paid advertising dollars. And yeah. with meta, you'll start to raise your EMQ and your event match quality, and that will contribute to an increase in ROAS. Step three that we usually recommend is prediction-based, and that's how do you grow your opt-in list? So the number of people who are you you have available to email or SMS, and then you can start increasing the number of people that you can activate your attentive or Klaviyo flows for. And then third is using those predictions themselves as audiences in meta. So if you want to just target your high value users for your high future value users for retargeting, start doing that. If you want to decrease the amount you're spending on low future value visitors, you can also do that. And again, these things are very easy. They're integrated. They just show up in your, in your Facebook dashboard. So that's usually the first okay. three steps. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Does it at the moment is it helping with and the like outside of the marketing side of the business? So maybe like merchandising or or something like that could could use it to predict like stock levels and and things like that. Or is it very much focused on on the actual customers and the, and the data there? It's funny you should ask that. We don't do that yet, but the combination of so over time we will be expanding into sort of supply chain inventory and finance data sets. And there, for example, being able to predict what's going to stock out, right? When you know what users are looking at and what their expected conversion rate is, you have a very good view into what the sort of purchase profile is going to look like of your site over the next X minutes, hours, months. And that can help you make sure that you have the right products available, given what expected conversions will look like. It can also make sure that you're merchandising and advertising the right products and not those that are going to be associated with the stock outage. So we're not there yet, but that is coming. Yeah. So that's, that's the sort of thing that I think most businesses find really useful, particularly being able to plan the inventory side of things, but also being able to then as like dynamically uh, change the, how the web, what the website is displaying based on that data as well. Yeah. So. I mean, I suppose it, I guess it would even match up with user data, wouldn't it? And say, well, like at the moment we're getting loads of traffic who likes to buy product A, yeah. but also product A is about to run out. So 
real wood. Like, uh, yeah, well, uh, provide some suggestions, basically. You know, what, exactly. what should we do? Should we should we be should we almost like promote that even further and say this is about to run out? Don't don't miss out. Is it a case of when people are on that page, making sure they get recommended some very very close alternative products instead? Yep. Um, so that when someone lands on the page, if it does happen to be out of stock, the page is saying, well, almost like hiding all the content for that product and saying, well, here is, unfortunately, that's out of stock, but here's all the information you need for product B. Yeah. As brands use their first party data in these new ways and with the help of machine learning, all of these sorts of use cases, exactly what you're describing, become possible. And again, that's about what I said at the very beginning, seeing into the future of your key KPIs, right? That might be inventory, that might be conversion rate, that might be user value. That can help you make the right decisions today far in advance. And so that's our, sort of our whole, when I was talking about de-averaging, right? De-averaging a brand's yeah. user base. It's about identity and you can de-average all sorts of things. But when you have a more granular understanding than just the average, you can make much, much smarter decisions today that will change the course of those KPIs. Yeah. So yeah, actually another thing that I've been exploring kind of on, on the merchant side, merchandise side is like toxic products. So I suppose that's that's probably something that might fit in already because you've got the user behavior, right? So if you're you're seeing there's a, a large number of people who are buying this a particular product, it's their first purchase and they never come back. Mm. Oh, so that's a red flag on the potentially not on the advertising side because they are customers who who bought it could be a red flag on actually is this product as good as we think it is is this the quality as good is it is it meeting the standards and, and looking into that side and it, it could also mean maybe we need to stop selling that product yeah i just pull that product because when people have their first their first experience of the brand is that product and again, that, that would be a super interesting prediction problem, which is, yes, like it could be that that product fulfills all their needs and so they are, they're all set. Or it could be that, yeah, exactly as you said, that it generates a bad experience. And so if you can predict by product, does the, does the lifetime value change depending on which product is first purchase? That's a wonderful thing to know, right? And then you can steer people to or from certain products in order to maximize their their future value to you as a brand yeah i suppose there's there's always going to be that extra level of insight that's required that might require that human sh human element to it so email surveys one-to-one -one interviews because yeah you need to find out right when if people are buying this product and not coming back yeah like you said is it actually because it's incredible it's done the job for right. it and they have no need to come back or is it because no one likes it and it's a bad brand experience. I mean, you might see that through reviews and things. If a, if a, if a product's getting fewer re reviews, but I've seen businesses doing you know, 10, 15 million a year and still not getting that many product reviews through. Mm, interesting. So then if you, you don't, if you don't have that data there. So how do you address that? How do you help them address that? I mean, I'm, you mentioned zero party data earlier, which we're huge fans of here, right? Where like, users or customers proactively hand over this like very rich information but how do you help a brand address that if they're just not getting good visibility into how customers think about their products so if they're not getting reviews obviously the, the first step we'll take is 
is the review process that good? You know, are the, are the invites good? Is Are they being sent at the right time? That sort of thing. Just make sure the setup is correct. Then previously what we've done is, what's it called, like an awareness survey. Mm-hmm. And I find out how many people, how many people even know about these products. Right? You know, obviously, if they're selling, then we know they're doing okay, but there might just be an awareness piece. Right. Pe- people don't know about them, so people aren't buying them. Right. And if if you're only getting a handful of sales every month of a particular product, you're just not going to get many reviews. Right. Because I think a good review rate for for standard e-commerce is probably six, seven, eight percent. Yep. Certain brands, I, I worked with a custom PC brand before, they were getting, I think, 15, 16% review rate. But that makes more sense because it was a bit more of a bespoke service. And so they had that that uh, I see. Yeah. Brand. They're individually customized. Right. Yeah. So yeah, then it could be actual surveys to to customers who have bought that product. Instead of asking for for a review, asking them directly for feedback and end interviews. Yeah. And get, getting on the phone phone with people. Now most of what I do tends to be the CRO focus at the overall kind of what's what is someone's expectation on the brand or the products what they're trying to achieve but there's no reason why you couldn't go down that route of saying right we're having a problem with this product people don't come back when they buy it let's phone up every single one of the customers who's bought it and and ask them a few questions about it find out whether they do like it whether they don't yeah and and just what's going on there yeah so at the moment it is it is a bit more hands-on it's it's can be quite time consuming, but that's going to be, it, it could generate you very valuable insight. Client a little while back, we, we just found that generally the hero product meant that people didn't need to come back and buy, which because it did the job, right? But they really struggled to sell any of the complementary items. And then we also found through awareness that generally people didn't know about them. Even though they were on the store, they were in upsell, upsell flows and things in emails. The awareness of uh, the highest awareness of a product was something like fifty-five percent. Oh, interesting. Which, when you've got about nine products on a website, it's not a very good awareness rate. Right. What I'm curious when when you're advising customers, wh- what is generally like the approach you take on? on first party data like do you find that that brands understand its power and everything that they own no no short answer i think there's a very generally tends to be quite a limited understanding of personalization Mm -hmm. and how that works i think it tends to be a bit more we'll we'll use first name there might be a might be a bit of using it to maybe trigger certain email flows or determine what content should be in an email flow. It's quite often just based on, has this person purchased this product or this product? Yeah. That that sort of thing. Understood. But I think, and even though it's still, it's still not really getting there with people, zero party data is the much hotter topic at the moment, but that just might be through, I'm obviously connected with lots of, a lot of people who talk about it on LinkedIn. Yeah. And, and I look at it a lot. So I think maybe it's an industry obsession. Yeah. That hasn't quite quite fed through to, to as many brands yet, because you still see every pop up is just his ten percent off. Give us your email address, right? Which then means that every welcome flow is exactly the same for everyone, right? right? And with brands, a lot of brands 
there are a lot of brands out there who sell a reasonably limited amount of products, which means you can start creating these personalized experiences just based off a couple of questions yeah. and then manually setting things up. Yeah. If, even as basic as, are you looking to buy men's or women's clothing when, when, you're, when you're shopping here? Right? Once you get the answer to that, it's very, very high level, but you can probably make the assumption that if they selected men's clothing, you don't need to put women's clothing or suggestions in those emails because it's very unlikely that they're going to buy them. But I think, I I don't want to go on about this too much, but I think one of the problems is on the the email retention side, brands who do it in-house don't don't have huge amount of resource for it a lot of the time, which means that it tends to get set up and then small optimizations are made as a big focus on campaigns and and that's about it. I, I've I've seen a lot more customization work where an agency's got involved yep. because they've they've got full teams available to, to continuously revamp things. We see that sometimes yeah. as well when we implement smart ID with a brand and some of the just very basic best practices, which is having a, a triggered flow for card abandonment, having a flow for product view, et cetera. They may not be taking advantage of those very basic capabilities in Klaviyo or whatever ESP they're using. And so certainly we'll add a bunch of value just by being able to send more of them. But then just we have a team of sort of trial experts who sort of handhold through the the launch process. They'll just also make sure that these sort of basic things often working with their agency are set up and they're taking advantage of them. Yeah. I mean, just, just going back to the kind of zero party data piece, on an abandoned cart flow, yeah, at, at the moment, they're all completely the same. One well, not all, obviously. Most brands, exactly the same. It's here you left this product in your cart, or you left this behind, followed up by another, you've left this behind, did you want it? And then normally a third one, which is a discount. Right. That's probably 95 to 99% of abandoned cart flows. What I'd actually love to try out is an abandoned cart flow, which starts with what is the main reason you didn't complete your purchase today and offer four or five options right or clickable options right so option one might be i got distracted i didn't have time they click that and maybe it takes them back to their to the cart or whatever just see if you can get them to complete the purchase the other options might be i didn't quite understand the product i wasn't convinced by the product stuff like this or maybe i didn't realize that was a shipping fee right Something like that, which when clicked, either could lead them to a chatbot or something, which then starts giving them information about that piece they've selected, or or maybe could trigger another email. Yeah, immediately, or get you at least segment them right so they're they're in the right bucket of whatever the next communication is. Maybe it's an education yeah. flow, or maybe it's a free shipping flow, whatever it is. But you can address something better than just making an assumption about what. The yeah, I, I think, it, but. It worked really well because we, we, I've done it. I've tested it with a client with SMS. We used a we used a, com- a company called Cartlink for it. Mm-hmm. It abandoned cart SMS basically. So you would you'd get an SMS saying, "Hi, it's Will from this brand. I noticed you left this new cart. Did you have any questions about it?" I think that was it. Or no, but yeah, I think we left it as that. You know, Did you have any questions about it? So open ended, and then when a person responded, we knew that their responses fell into four or five buckets yeah. basically so we prepped some answers for that 
So if someone said anything related to shipping or anything negative related to shipping, so, oh, I didn't realize that was a shipping fee or shipping fees too high, anything like that, the, f- the approach we went with was, oh, like, well, if you buy, if you upgrade to this bundle, which includes this, these complementary products to go with that, with the, with the main product, you'll get free shipping right. with this. Right. Right. So we, and, and the conversion rates for this were really, really good. So yeah, I'd like to be able to take that experience to, to email probably. I mean, it could, it could work on SMS, but I think it's, it needed to be a bit more conversational. So it probably needs a little bit more human in, in involvement with that yeah. at the moment. But I suppose with all chat GPT and, and all that sort of stuff, you probably get to the point quite quickly where you, you'd be able to automate that by just building out a few rules. Yeah. I suppose you've just got to get some, maybe some sentiment stuff in there. Yeah. But I think vast majority of the time, if, if someone responds to your abandoned cart message, their response is likely to be some sort of negative response right don't want to pay shipping don't understand the product didn't have time right. something like that it's it's really going to be a positive about the shipping fee yeah right now yeah. yeah cool so just before we finish up unless you've got anything else you wanted to add about no no AI. i mean again we're all just about making sure that brands know all the data they have access to use it and use machines to make the most sense of it and everything we do, just if people want to try out Black Crow, it's one click to install. And we let you just use it for 30 days for free so you can see it working before you have to make any sort of subscription decision. Cool. cool. Awesome. So just two final quick questions sure. before we finish up. Is there anyone in the kind of e-commerce marketing space that you'd want to sit down for lunch with? Or anyone from a particular brand? Yeah, I mean... Definitely Apple, because I would like to know what it is they're ultimately going for here. Because this, the problem as they've continued to evolve iOS and, and Safari, it's just really cutting off brands' abilities to maintain relationships, rich relationships with their users and customers. And I have my own suspicions about why they're doing this, which is because it's good for Apple. They always want to be the intermediary layer between brands and their and their consumers so they're sort of privileging their own access to data but i'd like to really understand how they plan to make sure that that brands can continue to own their customer relationships yeah well there's, there was a lot of talk about them releasing their own ad platform a while ago yeah. but obviously it's it would still be different to meta because meta's ads are on meta's platform right so that's a bit different yeah well it's obviously been a, a couple of years now yeah, what I find very interesting is the things that they're doing in the name of privacy, you know, things like intelligent tracking prevention, the opt-ins they've done, ATT, those things don't apply to Apple. And so in the name of privacy, what they've done is sort of privilege or give themselves sort of unique walled garden access to identity. And that is really what this is about. It's a fight over identity. And we haven't really seen them do a lot of things, certainly in the marketing space with it yet. But that is like, I think a lot of the battle between Facebook, Google, Apple, maybe Amazon to some extent, it's about putting walls up around data and trying to create unique data advantage for the platform. 
And yet everything they say publicly is, is not obviously about that. It's about privacy. But, you know, every time you buy a new Apple device, you will consent without reading to the 72 pages of small print. And I think most people aren't taking the time understandably to to know what's really in those terms of service and and data rights yeah yeah i mean who, who wants to read 72 pages of legal job <laughs> exactly yeah. cool final question yeah I, I know you kind of mentioned it just before but what's one final piece of advice for brands? yeah i think it's it's really like understanding that in the current world data is a unique asset right and as a brand you have a very specific data asset which is your own users customers their behavior and interaction points with your products and services and with your brand itself and i think as the as the world changes around us that is one of those assets that it's not going to be optional to leverage it and i think we see the power of data in so many ways and there's so much focus on on ai at the moment but i would just encourage brands to make sure that they're leveraging it for themselves and machines are a great help and so whether it's black crow or or someone else who can help you get your first party data house in order i would say do it because the the walls are are going up and the big platforms want that asset that same asset which is yours and you should hold on to it, own it, and make use of it. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. If anyone wants to reach out and find out more, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, I would say you can always send me a message on LinkedIn, Richard L. Harris. You can come to blackcrow.ai. And if you're interested in talking to someone about what we do or how to get started, you can just fill out a contact form and it's literally one click to start a 30-day trial. Awesome. All right. Thanks so much, Richard. Thanks, Will. Pleasure. I wish I'd had tools like Black Crow when I was in-house. I used to spend hours digging through spreadsheets to identify trends, trying to understand them, and then make actions from them. The technology, even just a few years later, provides so much opportunity for brands to make better use of their data and not actually have to be data experts themselves. But being able to automate actions for customers is very useful, but you've got to remember tools like this are still limited by the brand's own capabilities. You know, as with most tech tools out there, You can't just set and forget it. The real value is in working with the tool to identify new opportunities and continue to use that that insight to experiment and grow. If you'd like to hear more from Richard, you can find him on LinkedIn. Any other podcast questions, feedback or guest requests, please send them over to will at customerswhocliqued.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, I've got George Huff joining me. We're going to be talking about the dangers of working in silos. But until then, keep those customers clicking. 